when I'm sitting, I have this opportunity from time to time to settle into something rich and deep and intimate and vast and boundless. And that's very restorative and cleansing. And it produces something called Zen Ki or Zen energy or Zen power. And it also usually comes along with a certain clarity. And then when you get up from the cushion, you feel better able or ready to face life and all of its uh, ups and downs and complexities. And you feel clear about what needs doing. And it always involves getting things done, but getting things done with a loving action or a kind open-heartedness. Genjo Marinello began his Zen training in 1975, sending his first Sashin in the summer of 1977. He began the formal process of ordination in 1980 and trained at Rutakoji in Japan in 1981 and 1982. In 1999, Genjo Roshi was installed as abbot of Choboji Temple in Seattle, where he has served ever since. Genjo was affirmed as the Dharma heir of the late Edo Shimano Roshi in May of 2008. His talks and essays have been widely published, and his commentary on koan practice has been translated into several languages. Committed to both justice and the teaching of Buddhism, Genjo served several local and national interfaith organizations, and has participated in bearing witness retreats at Auschwitz, Rwanda, and the Black Hills of South Dakota. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Widemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit providencezen.org. So Genjo, you began practicing in the mid-70s, and I'm wondering what brought you to the practice? What what made you decide that this was a path for you and then ultimately why you became a priest? Well, how long back do you want to go? Uh, <laughs> all the way, all the way back. <laughs> you know, I think that the human condition is driven in some ways by our instincts of survival, but since we can't survive, I think we're prompted by the very fact that we can't physically survive to explore something beyond ourselves. So in that sense, I think my spiritual quest uh, began at birth. Hmm. And then as a young child, my I was told about God and I, my prayers were so fervent that my mother kept me away from traditional 
Catholic upbringing because she was afraid that I'd become a priest. And she didn't <laughs> think much of that idea, so she kept me away from the church. And then she said, well, now look what happened to you. You, you know, if, right. uh, at least you'd have hair if you hadn't become a Zen monk. <laughs> and then in college, I was pretty much an atheist, and uh, I thought the only way to explore and understand something beyond ourselves was through science. <laughs> I think science is still a great way to explore the universe and try to understand our place in it. But I ran into a wonderful freshman English professor at my community college, actually, before I transferred to UCLA, that just really opened my eyes to something that he called the classical humanistic tradition, and we read all kinds of sources, like you normally would in freshman English, but we also read the Sermon at Benares by the historical Buddha and the Sermon on the Mount by the historical Jesus. It opened my eyes that there was something out there that people were tapping in different times and cultures and through arts and literature and sciences. They were drawing on some sort of... Um, I don't know, universal insight or something. And I thought, my goodness, where, do, where does the inspiration for the great arts and literature and philosophy and the great sages come from? Maybe they're inspired from one common source. That idea totally sparked me. And I, wanted, I thought to myself, well, I want to get in touch with that source, whatever that source is. And that led me eventually to some religious studies and a class in Buddhism. And I thought, well, Buddhism doesn't conflict with my interest in science. So I need to learn how to meditate because I want to cultivate true insight and understand my place in, a, in the universe. Try to understand my place in the universe from that exploration. You know, it's really funny. A number of the teachers I've talked with, when... I asked them how it began. They all referenced this kind of hunger from childhood. I'm not, not surprised. Yeah. That they've been sitting with a question in a real way. Um, yeah, that's just been pricking at them forever. I, I feel that's also similar for me. I, but um, yeah, just remar remarkable again. So you you started studying uh, in 75. And within five years, you said, yes, this is a, this is a path for me. I, you know, you began the ordination process to become a, a priest. Yeah. In between there, I, I graduated from uh, UCLA with a degree in psychobiology, and I thought I might go into uh, public health or medicine. And But I wanted to do something between uh, undergraduate and graduate school, so I signed up for to be a VISTA volunteer, which at the time, mm. VISTA was very much like the Peace Corps only inside the United States. And it, I ended up getting an assignment in Seattle, and I've lived in Seattle ever since, as a community organizer, and uh, in much the same light uh, as... President Obama got training in Chicago uh, doing community organizing. It was the same school of community organizing that I got trained by in, this would be 1976. And I was doing three years of uh, community organizing with VISTA uh, 
And I kind of burned out on that after three years. It was very, very intense, but very wonderful learning how to be in a multicultural city and work door to door on uh, helping to create neighborhood organizations that would do everything from fighting absentee landlords to city hall and creating a, a kind of a, a power base of neighbors that would care for the neighborhoods that they were living in. Very, very exciting, but very exhausting. But something that kept me sane at that time was doing meditation at the University of Washington with a, an art history professor by the name of Dr. Glenn Webb. And it was sitting with the what was then called the Seattle Zen Center that I did my first session in, 19, in the summer of 1977 and had a, a breakthrough experience that when I completed my community organizing, I kind of knew what I needed to do, which was to really pursue the path of Zen. And that uh, came around in 1980 of uh, shaving my head and getting ready to go to Japan in 1981. So what does that mean to you when you say that return, you know, following the path of Zen? It means diving deeply into this path of exploring our deep nature, hmm. uh, to explore the, the continuity and communion of a mind with a capital M that we all share that's uh, part of the fabric of the universe, and to uh, open one's deep heart mind for, I would say, caring and loving action in the world. So it's a whole package of wanting to explore the deep, true nature of ourselves and find that that's uh, interlaced in an interdependent way with the very fabric of the universe, which gives rise to an open heart and a caring action that is no action, we would say in Zen, buji. And is there something that really stands out for you as an image, how that's appeared in your life? Or, I mean, not to, <laughs> not to put such a fine point on it, but, you know, those are lovely words, but you're like, what does that, what does that mean to you? Well, it does mean a lot of sitting. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a lot in of order things. to stay, yeah. I, we're such complex creatures, uh, and easily conflicted and confused, and easily pulled about, yeah. pulled kind of apart by our conflicting needs and desires and attachments and delusions and fantasies, etc., uh, and fears. And in order to stabilize us, or in order to stabilize myself and feel connected to something bigger than myself. Uh, I, I found that doing a lot of zazen or seated meditation uh, calms me, grounds me, and connects me, or I recover my connection to something vast and boundless and loving. Uh, and that's absolutely necessary to live life, in my view. Otherwise, I think I would be crazy or uh, on drugs or, or uh, even suicidal. Uh, I, I don't know how people do it without a lot of meditation. I know I can't. 
You know, there was this passage in a talk that you gave uh, recently, uh, the book of uh, Equanimity, and uh, it was uh, case number 20, Jesus' most intimate. And I just wanted to read this passage to you because I, I loved it. I loved what you said. Uh, so this is these are your words. It is this place you can't know that Zen points at all the time. It is to get so deep in our investigation of what is this and who is asking that we experientially begin to dip into infinity. Infinity implies a vastness, but that's not enough. We are pointing at a multi-dimensional infinity that has no substance, let alone a name, and yet has a vitality or an energy or a life that gives rise to the universe. It is not something we can grasp or that we can even put into a formula or that we can even ascribe a meaning, and yet it can be felt and it can be lived. And I just loved the, you know, infinity gets very overwhelming and um, the, the not knowing can get so overwhelming. And yet here you are with this, um, this, God, I'm not sure exactly what the word is, but it's the sensualness almost of this infinity is sort of what was coming through for me. And I, I just really hadn't heard of the not knowing described that way before. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that touched you. And, um, you know, I never know exactly what I'm going to say when I give a, a Taisho. Something just comes out. It's like just opening up and, and letting a fountain pass through you. But indeed, when I'm sitting, I have this opportunity from time to time to settle into something rich and deep and intimate and vast and boundless. And that's very restorative and cleansing. And it produces something called Zen Ki or Zen energy or Zen power. And it also usually comes along with a certain clarity and then when you get up from the cushion, you feel better able or ready to face life and all of its uh, ups and downs and complexities, and you feel clear about what needs doing. And it always involves getting things done, but getting things done with a loving action or a kind open-heartedness. Yeah, and I, I feel like sometimes the you know when i come at the not knowing or that you know so i'm in a quantum school and we we use we, we say don't know but you know essentially the same that not knowing feels a little bit impenetrable and um and <laughs> almost alien in a way or but the way that you phrased it is is like it's it's not alien. It is incredibly it's infinite and vast, but it is also so present. I think of it as as almost moist. Uh, that mm -hmm. it, that's how it came yeah, through. That uh, you're soaking in it, like you're soaking in a hot tub, but it's an infinite hot tub that has no bottom, and uh, it does feel warm and uh, still and 
vast and every, all of, of one's anxieties and fears and um, conflicts seem to just sink or drain out and or resolve themselves and, and when you're deep enough in that uh, vat of vastness and then uh, you're filled up just naturally with something powerful and caring so it's 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 very intimate and in our tradition we say no knowing instead of don't know and i i see those as slightly different i mean they're uh mm -hmm. we, we, as i also said in that podcast that you were mentioning don't know is like about halfway there you get kind of exhausted trying to know and then something you slip behind some sort of veil and all of a sudden you're in this vastness where it's okay to have no knowing in fact no knowing is it right the other thing that i really loved i i, I didn't i wasn't familiar with this um the book of equanimity and so this was case number 20 and uh it's a conversation between jizo and hogan and uh, Jizo asks Hogan, like, where is he going? And he says, I'm on a pilgrimage. And Jizo says, where are you on this pilgrimage, essentially? And it, I loved it because uh, I think for those of us who are practicing, trying to practice, sometimes it really feels like, even if we're working with a teacher, even if we have a sangha, um, and we're very committed to either teacher or sangha, God, sometimes <laughs> I don't know where I'm like, where is this pilgrimage going? I don't know. And do I even have a home except that it's, you know, the journey into it? Well, if you put no in front of everything, you kind of uh, uh, got it covered. No home, no journey, <laughs> no pilgrimage, no, journey, no, 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 pilgrimage. no knowing. <laughs> uh, and yeah. uh, so who are you? No knowing. Where are you going? I don't know. Uh, where will you be tomorrow? I yeah. have no knowing. And, but, and yet, life presents itself, doesn't it? So in the immediacy of, of the circumstances in which you find yourself, there's no doing. There's, um, uh. or doing what comes naturally, so naturally from an integrated deep place that uh, a lot gets done. Uh-huh. So I recently read this article. Uh, of, it was an interview of you in uh, Presence Magazine, which is a, a magazine for spiritual directors. In addition to being, actually, I'm forgetting what the, the proper term for is, a psychoanalysis. Is that what your career, you're a psychoanalyst? I would say I was a psychotherapist. A psychotherapist, but you're also a spiritual director. Mm-hmm. And and that you you studied you went through the process of uh, you know formally studying spiritual direction as a Quaker, and I'm wondering how those two uh, traditions, the Buddhist tradition and the sort of Christian Quaker tradition, sort of have informed some of this not knowing of you know the Quakers, of course, also very contemplative, and just wondering how that has guided your practice and your teaching um, and, you know, guiding other students. I actually came to Quakerism 
after coming to Zen and after coming to Seattle, and it was exploring all kinds of different churches during uh, my time as a community organizer that I stumbled upon uh, Quaker Meeting. And at Quaker Meeting, there's a big crowd of people who are sitting silenced for an hour, and there's a Quaker joke about uh, coming into a silent room and someone expecting some sort of sermon or or presentation and to be preached at, and nothing happens. You go to a Quaker meeting, nothing happens, <laughs> and except that you're sitting in silence together. And then after maybe 30 minutes, someone stands and gives them a message. They're quaked with the Spirit, or they feel... Quakers would say the inner light uh, that needs to be spoken. And they'll stand and say something, uh, something from their heart uh, or from their inspiration or from their insight, having sat there in silence for half an hour with 100 people or more. And then they sit down, there's more silence, and maybe the next person will stand up and add something to what has already been said. And who knows what's going to be said first? And, and there's a thread that tends to happen in what's called a gathered meeting of, of friends with a capital F, Quakers, that uh, becomes the sermon that comes from everyone. Everyone the, the, has access to their inspiration or insight and is drawing on what be, would be, in Quakerism would be called the inner light and are trying to give that some manifestation and vocalization in, in a message. And that was very appealing to come from a Buddhist tradition where you're sitting and you get up from sitting having some clarity or inspiration or insight. The same thing was happening in this group process in Quaker meeting. So even though they come from vastly different great religious traditions, one Christianity and one Buddhism, to me, they were drawing on the same deep water table of no knowing. And they, the two practices, um, Quaker practice and Zen practice, were like having a right leg and a left leg. They seem to go along together just fine. In fact, uh, I feel more mobile by having two legs. <laughs> Is there an example you can think of where one really informed the other that where there was a moment of like, Oh, right. That's, that's what that means. Or. Well, something I love about uh, Quaker practice is that they say the service, when you're coming to a Quaker meeting and you're expecting a service, they say the service begins after the worship. And I love that. It's like, here we are worshiping together in silence merging or diving deep into what can be called the, the light or the divine or the no-knowing. And then collectively, we rise from meeting ready to be of service to our families, our neighborhoods, our society, our planet. And that idea of, of that we get up from worship ready for service just really in a way, completed my uh, hopes and desires for Zen practice. And so I try in my Zen practice as a abbot of a Zen temple to say, you know, this being in the Zendo is just the laboratory. 
living daily life and being of service to your friends, your family, your neighborhood, your nation and or your society and, and the planet, that's where you really take what you gain from your exploration has to be brought out into your daily life as loving service. And so those two things really informed each other and keep informing each other. Yeah, I did notice on your website, on uh, the Choboji website, you know, a lot about engaged Buddhism and, uh, and really a lot about uh, being, being in the world, being, um, being involved. Uh, you have a number of other organizations up there uh, as well that, you know, uh, of places for people to come and, and be part of a larger Buddhist vision of, of healing in the world. I also know that you've gone on retreat a few times with uh, Bernie Glassman in Auschwitz and Rwanda and in Wounded Knee here in the United States. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about, uh, one, what it was like to do those retreats, and um, two, do you feel like that practice has any sort of atonement for the world or, uh, you know, what... What do you think the the outcome of that practice is for us? It it serves in in various different ways. One, it serves in exploring just how convoluted, confused, conflicted, and uh, how tied up in knots so that we can become as human beings, personally and collectively, that we can be so horrid towards ourselves and towards our planet and trying to understand how we can be that selfish, that sadistic, that uh, genocidal. Uh, It's curious, isn't it? That uh, how did we survive so long being so easily um, tied up in knots that we could produce such evil? And you, you know, can I pause you just for a second? Can I ask you actually to describe the bearing witness retreats? Because I'm not sure everybody will know what they are, and and then they'll really understand what you were just saying. Because it it true, I true totally agree. I just think some people might not know what they are. Those retreats. Well, I'm getting ready to go to another one. This will be my third time to Auschwitz Birkenau the first week of November. Uh, oh. So I leave in just a couple of weeks. And we spent a lot of time, like five days, sitting on the sorting tracks, uh, right where people got off of cattle cars, stuffed in cattle cars, got off and either went to the labor camp side of uh, Auschwitz and probably died in three months from starvation and hard labor, or went immediately to the gas chamber. And we know a number of the names of people who were sent there and a lot of people who were We'll never know what their names were. And, of course, millions of people were killed in these camps. And uh, so you can't possibly read all the names in five days that were killed in that one camp. But we sit there and do meditation or contemplative prayer, depending on, because there are people from various uh, traditions. And then at some point in the middle of our hours of meditation, 
we begin to read names. And there's something mm. that's tremendously transformative of just being in the presence of such uh, darkness. And even though it was more than 70 years ago, in the case of uh, Auschwitz, the, it's a palpable kind of sense of uh, trauma that is still present in the tracks and the cattle car and the barracks and the ground itself. It's, it, it just feels loaded with um, dark presence. And when we read the names, you, one gets the feeling that um, ghosts are released, that feel it, that uh, uh, some of the trauma is recognized, witnessed, and perhaps just slightly healed every time as a group we go and sit on those tracks. That there's some kind of witnessing, recognition, acceptance, sorrow, grief, uh, acknowledgement that brings a, a little bit of healing, like peeling back layers of an onion uh, to that very space. And the, some of the people who are from the region there in, in Poland near Krakow, they'll, they'll say that the whole camp feels a little bit lighter to them. The, the towns around the camp feel a little bit lighter because, you know, there's been a hundred people who have come together from all over the world to meditate on those tracks. And so that gives you an idea of how it works. We, we, we have a, a small group meetings in the morning to process what's coming up for us when we're sitting on the tracks. Then we go sit on the tracks all day and uh, explore different parts of the camp and have people guide us through what was happening in these different sections of the camp and hear many horror stories and, and many uh, stories of uh, heroism and, and compassion too, all mixed together. It's an amazing mix. And terror and horror and care and compassion all mixed together. And try to synthesize or, I don't know, just witness it and how it could all come to such a crescendo in these places of genocide, especially. And uh, you feel a bit of a release, a bit of unfolding personally and collectively. And there's a kind of um, a little bit more healing that comes to the region and to, the, and to that very place. Um, and there's a lot more to be done. It's like it leaves a very dark, long shadow. And by having people come to witness, you get a sense the shadow shrinks a little bit. Mm. Yeah, so that you're going again. You've been to Rwanda. You've been to a wounded knee. Is there a difference between like where it was in Europe or Africa or the United States, or do you feel that um, you know the this sort of? Well, I think about ritual healing as well. Um, just here we are as Americans. Um, you know, what are we doing? <laughs> In this sort of crazy time, I've, it almost feels like there's this explosion that's coming out from this healing that we haven't done, you know. Or, uh, or, or, or the, we're on the cusp of doing. Uh, yeah. My, my hope is, or I 
tend to think of myself as an optimist that that the pendulum has swung in such a way that we are able to see our own underside and our underbelly in a way that will help us witness it and process it and grow from it and mm-hmm. uh, that's what i hope for us as a nation but going to and we've got a lot of healing to do with our indigenous populations just uh, canada's way ahead of us and it's not like canada doesn't have uh, further to go but it's way ahead of where we are in the united states but i think we'll eventually get there and and we will move on the a better integration and uh, witness and and amends to our native population in the United States at least that's what I hope for and and to the people of color who were you know imported as slaves there's still so much healing that is yet to be recognized witnessed and uh, more much more amends need to be done um, and I think we're in the process of, of waking up to do it. And part of the current time is to just see uh, the great need and the, the lack of healing that has happened and to recognize the lack of healing that's happened and to get, get about it more seriously. Now there's this, you know, this podcast is really about practice and, and part of that came about because I have this belief that, um, reading books and being educated is important, but somewhere there has to be this shift from out of the thinking and into the, the heart or the embodiment of it. And I totally agree with everything you just said. I also have this great hope, but I also know that, you know, practice is hard (laughs) or it can be, you know, I mean, it's, it's not hard. You just sit down, but you know, um, it can appear very hard and I I get less hopeful in that area where I think of people doing the practice, whatever it is, whether it's meeting or uh, Buddhist sitting. Um, And I just don't know how we're going to get there without doing more practice as a people. Or maybe you do see us doing more. I, I don't know. Well, I don't know how to do it without more practice. And just to keep myself sane, let alone uh, try to think about <laughs> uh, how we as a nation or as a society are going to be more sane. Uh, yeah. We certainly need uh, practice, but I have to speak for myself. I need the practice. Yeah. And I would say practice is so simple. You know, sit down, breathe, observe, uh, then bow and get up and do things. <laughs> That's very simple. Very, very simple. But it's not easy. Uh, it's really not easy. It's not easy to commune with our own depth. It's not easy to get up from the cushion and act in this world from a powerful, caring, open heart. That's not easy. It's simple to say. It's not easy to do. Yeah, and I, I guess what uh, what's present there for me, right, is you know, you've done these retreats that are both about the just the the worst of humanity, the real horrors that we're capable of, and also the great sort of affection and imp- uh, intimacy that you've that you've talked about when you 
when you really are referencing the no knowing. We're in a time where it's it feels so almost so painful <laughs> that, that to to sort of be in the the sensuality of the no knowing. God, sometimes it um, it's hard to hold both for me anyway, or not hard, but um, I don't know how to exactly say it. Well, I think that's the beauty of practice. If we're getting into our depth, which doesn't have any bottom, then it's a it can it can receive anything. That depth can receive anything. It's like the ocean receives all the rivers of the world and is barely impacted. The because it's so vast, the ocean is so vast, it can receive all the waters of the world. Uh, in a way, our own depth is so vast we can connect with something or we are connected to something that is so vast and boundless that all of the horror and sorrow and um, can and conflict can be absorbed and to some extent released and to some extent healed hmm. And then, if I have even temporarily been restored and, and released and healed, then I can get up from the cushion, step out of my laboratory of no known knowing called the Zendo, and walk into my daily life with a refreshed and caring spirit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found this conversation with Genjo Marinello encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching and retreat schedule at choboji.org. That's C-H-O-B-O-J-I dot org. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at providencezen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos there you can watch at providencezen.org videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.